Let me start by thanking all of you for inviting me to be here, the month scholar. It has been a wonderful experience to get to know all of you in the different contexts, visiting in the synagogues, teaching in the JCC, enjoying your friendly support, sharing words, experiences, good times. Everybody was extremely kind, extremely supportive. I had enjoyed myself immensely to be here, and I'm very grateful for all of you. Now, I would like to speak today on a subject which is very unpleasant. Unlike other subjects that we had talked about, you know, nobody would say that he is a 12th century mystic or is a 13th century philosopher. Those were topics of the past. But what we're talking today is the issue of Jewish women, and that is a complicated issue. Now, people tend to get a bit nervous and itchy about it, but I would like to start by saying that whatever I say is not referring in person to anybody. I'm not speaking on people who are present here. I'm not speaking on people who live on the 21st century. I'm speaking on the phenomenon in general. And we need to recall that while we enjoy, at least people who live in this continent, enjoy equality and freedom, this is not at all taken for granted, not to be taken for granted in this part of the world and is not yet to be taken for granted in other parts of the world. So what I'm referring to is the complexity of Jewish history, which also pertains to world history in general, but I'm concentrating on Jewish history. So I ask you to bear with me and not to feel attacked or judgmental, just let us spend some time thinking about those things. Now, when we ask ourselves where to start, the good place always is in the Bible. That's always the good start in any discussion in Jewish topic. What do we learn in Genesis chapter 5? When that's a very famous chapter known as Ze Sefer Toldot Adam. This is the book of human history. Adam and Eve are the parents of a very unfortunate family. One child is a murderer, another child is being murdered, and the world is starting with the third child, Seth. He is the father of Enosh, he is the father of Canaan, and it goes for the first ten generations of the world. Who is missing? No mothers are mentioned. Now, this is important. Next time when you are in your JCC, in your synagogue, in any formal building, please look on the pictures on the wall and ask yourself, are there equal number of men and women on the walls? Usually not. In most places, there would be 95 pictures of men and maybe four pictures of women of recent times. Just observe it and watch it and ask yourself, has it always been like that, that the women were left outside? The answer is yes. Now, for instance, if you'll go to visit in Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem, there is the wall of all the people who had chaired Hadassah Hospital. There is no woman on the wall. Well, there are many women professors, but there are no women in this wall of the chairs. It's the same in most institutions. But I want you to ask yourself how that came to be. What was the situation that had caused the women to be left out, to be marginalized? And that's the point that I would like to draw your attention, that the common denominator 
of the various of the various periods that I've been speaking about and the various topics that I've been speaking about is my interest in marginal voices, my interest in forgotten voices, in people who were left outside. My interest in the Apocrypha is derived exactly from this question, why those books were left outside. Apocrypha means books which left outside. In Hebrew, Sfarim Chitzonim, books which were left outside. Why were they left outside? From the very same reason, I'm interested in history of women. And I ask my question, why were they left outside? In what way were they left outside? Let's check a very objective issue. You go to the National Library in Jerusalem and you ask the librarians, how many books do you have in the library? I mean, individual books between the beginning of the printing press available, the very end of the 15th century, until the very end of the 19th century. 20th century, it's a side note included. How many books are in the library that each book represents a single book, not copies of? The answer is 100,000 books. Next question, ne next question is, how many books were written by women? The answer is none. None. Okay, in Hebrew, I'll qualify. No book in the National Library that was printed between the 15th century to the end of the 19th century in Hebrew letters had been written by a woman. Now, that's what I call exclusion. The meaning of that is that while women were always present, at least everyone has a mother, no doubt, in every community, women are at least part of the community. But in any community, there was never a woman writer within the Jewish community. So the question that I pose is, the question that I'd like to consider, why Jewish women who were always clever and smart and capable, exactly as Jewish men, no less, why they were left outside? Why they didn't share with the benefits of public education, of public scholarship, of public authority, of public teaching. Why were they left outside? Let me read to you aloud an answer re-offered by Yosef ben Matityahu, Josephus, at the end of the first century. Josephus was a priest, a clever man, a good writer. He was writing in Rome, and he's delineating the situation of the Jews for the Romans. He says the following. The woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the men. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, no, but that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the men. There is all the patriarchal order in a nutshell. I will read it one more time, so you'll get the, so you'll get the opportunity to appreciate the justification of the situation. The writer is a priest, is a, is a person who is sitting in Rome. He's explaining to the Romans the Jewish laws. He, is, he cannot assume that they know anything on the, biblical, uh, on the biblical heritage. However, Josephus is an excellent writer, and in his book, Apion or versus Apion, he introduced the Jewish religion in a very bright way. Now, in regard to women, he says, the woman says the, the, woman says the law is in all things inferior to the men. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation. 
but that she may be directed for the authority but sorry but that she may be directed for the authority has been given by God to the men now when exactly authority was given by God to the men this is the foundation of the patriarchal order because in Genesis chapter 3 in the story of great importance the myth of paradise the whole story is being told only for the purpose of the following sentence, and he will rule over thee. That's the conclusion of the story of Genesis. Do you remember the story? Adam, Eve, the snake. He, the snake is tempting Eve. Eve is eating a fruit. The result is that they are considered to be sinners. God is deporting them from paradise. Each one of the participants being cursed. To the men, God is saying, you have to work. You're not going to have free food anymore. <laughs> that was paradise. You must work. To the woman, he says, you will give birth in great pain. You will desire your husband, and he will rule over thee. Now, about birth and pain, you may say, this is nature. We know that's the way that birth is taking place. However, it is not at all nature that men would rule over women. But whoever wrote this story made sure to make that a divine curse forever and ever. We call it the patriarchal order. Patriarchal order is derived from the Latin word pater, which means just father, in a society that the fathers, or the men alone, have all the rights exclusively. They have the right to rule, they have the right to study, they have the right to teach, they have the right to testify, they have the right to judge, they have the right to write, they have the right to read, and none of those rights are shared by the woman. Because according to Jewish law, woman may not testify, nor can she judge, according to rabbinic law, not according to biblical law. Women cannot teach, women cannot study. All those things are reserved for the men. Now, men wrote it, of course, even if they ascribe it to God. Men wrote it because they found a very convenient system of getting free labor without any, without any cost. Now, I want to remind you something. As I said, some may not care for the comparison. But being American, and many of you, I'm sure, are students of law, you may recall that before the, civil, before the Civil War, there was a law that anyone who would teach his slaves to read and write would be brought to court. It was a criminal punishment. Why was teaching your slave to read and write a criminal punishment? Because the owners knew very well that as soon as the slaves would learn to read and write, they would protest against the situation that they are in. Now, the slaves were not born slaves by God, although the master said that this is a divine curse, of course. We always use divine curse when it's convenient to us. You know, we don't apply it to ourselves, we apply it to others. However, the blacks who were enslaved were denied the right to learn to read. And as I said, it was a criminal offense to teach the slaves, male and female alike, to read because it was well understood that as soon as they will learn to read and write, they would protest, they would acquire the means to criticize. Exactly according to the same pattern, 
Men did not want women to learn to write and read, so they will not protest and they will not criticize, and they made sure that they will not be taught and will not be participating in any communal house of learning. It is important to note the following. In the Jewish community that had valued always scholarship to the greatest amount, scholarship was reserved to men alone. Instead of talking on the people of the book, we should talk on half the people of the book because the other half was illiterate. As I said, it is not pleasant. It is a fact, it is a sad fact. But the test is, if you say otherwise, show me one book that had been written by a woman. There is no such book. Later on in the 19th century, women had started, towards the end of the 19th century, women had started to write in German, in Yiddish, but not in Hebrew, not as part of the formal education. Now, why is that? Because early in the rabbinical period, partially because of the Augustine reforms of strengthening the family in the beginning of the first century, the idea was that women should stay at home and rear children and give birth, and men should go outside and participate in the public arena with all its benefit. Now, studies on family in the Hellenistic period, recently produced by Schremer, Shia Cohen, and other important scholars, telling us that the common age of marriage in the Hellenistic period, that's the last few centuries before the common era, and the Roman period, the last few centuries of the common era, the average age of marrying girls was 12, 13. Well, it sounds very strange in our days, but we need to remember that the average lifespan was about 32, 33. So marrying girls very early was common. However, what was the average marriage life of the men? 20, from 20 to the late 20. So there was a quite a difference between the husbands who were fully grown ups and the wives who were really children. Thus, there was a situation of authoritative master and childish slave. You may enjoy to learn one word in Latin. The word family, which you are all familiar with, is derived from the Latin word famulus, which means a slave and a servant. Not very pleasant to know, but etymology is very good to learn. Family is derived from the word famulus, which means in Latin a slave and a servant. And it is derived from the history of masters who had family of slaves, Hebrew speakers among you would know the word pamalia, familia. Pamalia is the group of people who are serving the king or, or who are serving the master. The word is serving. Women and slaves were serving the master who was the only soul of authority. There was no equality in biblical law or in rabbinical law. We may use the Latin word sub virga. Sub virga means under the whip of the master. Only the master had the authority to whip or to beat his wife as much as he had the right to beat his slaves. In the 13th century, at the end of the 12th century, and in the 13th century, the illuminated, the illustrious Maimonides is writing, a man has the right to beat his wife with a whip 
as soon as she does not conform with his expectation. Now, Maimonides was considered to be the incarnation of rational thinking. For him, it was very normal and very rational to suggest that women should be beaten and that in Hilchot Ishut, the laws of personal matters, chapter 21, he suggests that women should be beaten if they don't conform to their obedience for their husbands and for their expectation to serve him. That was common rabbinic knowledge. Now, you may add not only rabbinic knowledge. That's true. In the Roman law, that was exactly the case. In the Greek law, that was the same case. The idea of subvirga that is taken from the Roman law, it means under the whip, under the authority to beat and to use the whip against those who are under you. Those who under you were the servants, the familia of slaves, and your wife. This is interesting to recall because when today we study the rates of violence in the family, we should remember that it's until quite recently every man was allowed to beat every wife. And in fact, you would be delighted to learn that the English expression rule of thumb in fact refers to a very interesting point. It's to the width of the thumb of the master should not exceed the width of the whip that he's beating his wife. That's the origin of this. Uh, when you say rule of thumb, you know we say something as rule of thumb. This rule of thumb means that the whip that you beat your wife with should not be thicker than this thumb. Now, it's very pleasant to recall the history of violence, which was history of normality. That's the point that I'm trying to make. It was normal. It was considered to be right that men may beat their wives. Now, until today, as you all know, there is violence in the family. It's not only history. People who are doing social work or studying in schools of social work are taking courses in violence in the family. People who work in emergency rooms are meeting quite a lot of victims of violence in the family. But most people don't know that it was a positive legal position that was endorsed by laws all over the world. In the Muslim world, until today, a man has the full legal right to beat his wife just as well. He may divorce her just by saying, get away from here. Ruch minhon, like, get away. He doesn't need any other procedures. He just has to explain his dissatisfaction with his wife. The world was a very bleak place for women because of the following. They were not allowed to be taught, thus they were ignorant. There was no public facilities for women education, thus they were ignorant. Public facilities for education is of the highest importance because while every male member of the Jewish community was educated, whether he wanted or not, he had to be educated according to the law. The community took responsibility on educating every male child of the community, regardless to his social position, economical position, or any kind of position. Every male member of the Jewish community from the age of three would be educated in the responsibility of the community. No such educational funds or facilities or places would be made for women. The first 
school in the religious quarters for women was established only in the 20th century. It was established by Sarah Schneerer and the Chafetz Chaim and Bialik in Poland in the first third of the 20th century. Before that, there was no public school in the religious world for Jewish girls. There were other schools, public schools, but there were no Jewish public schools. While every boy would be sent to the cheder when he was three years old, to the yeshiva when he was 12, to Bet Midrash when he was 18. The course of education was continuous and important. Nowhere in the Jewish world there would be any establishments or facilities or funds for educating the girls. So the girls were ignorant, although there were exceptions. There were a few exceptions, and one of them I would note, people who had only daughters, such as Rashi, would educate their daughters because they didn't have men and they would like to impart their knowledge or their library to their daughters. People who had been printers, would teach their daughters to help in the printing shop so they would teach them to read. However, that had been done as a private engagement, not as a public engagement. So here and there we would have educated women, but the majority of women were uneducated. Interestingly enough, in the 40s and in the 50s, when many waves of immigrations came to the land of Israel. After 1948 and onwards, the clerks of the immigration had asked only three questions. As you know, the first Jewish law, the first state, the first law of the Israel, the Israeli state was that every Jew is admitted to the land of the Jews. It was not the land of the Israelis, it was the land of the Jews. Thus, anyone is admitted with no questions but three. What is your name? What is the name of your mother and father? Where are you coming from? And the last one was, could you please sign your name in any language known to you? Most of the women who came from Persia, from Yemen, from Ethiopia, from rural Iraq, didn't know to sign their names. The clerks were astonished. They didn't realize that thousands of Jewish women have no idea how to sign their name in any given language. Because you may recall, by nature, nobody of us learn to read. By nature, we are illiterate. It takes culture to teach to read, and culture is always a public venture. If you are excluded from the public facilities and the public responsibility and the public tuition, you would not be educated. That was the case. So people who came from Morocco, for instance, all the men knew to write their name. All the women from rural Morocco had no idea how to write. Women who came from Yemen, not a single one knew how to write. Women who came from inner Africa, like the faraway parts of Jerba, of uh, Tripoli, didn't know how to write. Now, they were intelligent women. They were handy women. They were quite well versed with crafts, with arts, with sewing, with knitting, with embroidering, with doing all kinds of wonderful things. They were not incapable. They were definitely capable in numerous things. However, they were illiterate. And the meaning of illiteracy is that you are utterly dependent on somebody else to tell you what is the bus number that is approaching to the bus station? What is the letters for coffee, sugar, or soap? You have no idea because 
when you come from one culture to another, you don't know the common things in your own place, and you need to use letters. They were completely incapable. When I was a soldier many years ago, we were recruited to teach illiterate women. I was surprised, amazed by the extent of illiteracy in the 60s in Israel. We were teaching in Sderot. Sderot is a development town not far from Beersheba. Most women had no idea how to read and write, and they were very much in agony about it. They said, nobody ever taught us. We were mothers, we were married in a very young age, but nobody ever took the trouble to teach us to read and write. Now, when we need to help our children, we have no idea, and we are very shameful that we don't know to read and write. Now, that was common sin. In Israel, of course, there is a compulsory educational law. And everyone who is born in Israel has, of course, the equal benefit of going to school. But the mothers and the grandmothers of the immigrants didn't have that benefit. So we had quite a problem of illiteracy to face. But that wasn't only us. It had been the case everywhere. And because if you'll ask yourself, did your grandmother know to read? Or did the mother of your grandmother know to read? The answer is more often than not, no, she didn't know to read. She could have been very well versed with other things, but reading is not learned if somebody does not teach you. And if somebody will not teach you and would not allocate funds for that and would have rooms for that, you won't be taught. That's as simple as that. Cheder was only for young males. Bet Midrash was and is only for males. Yeshiva was and is only for males until today. Only now there are similar or somewhat similar institutions for females in the religious and in the secular world. But at the 19th century or 18 or 17 or 16 or any earlier one, there were no educational facilities for girls. Okay, now, uh, the next thing that we should look at is what was the situation in the world next to us? Paulus was born as a Jew. His name was Saul. He lived in the first century. When he was asked what he has to say, and he was brought among the Pharisees, when he was asked what he has to say about the situation of women, he said the following. Women will learn with complete silence. Women would, be, women would learn with complete subjugation. I don't allow any women to teach, and I don't allow any women to rule over her husband. She has to stay silent. Now, that was very advanced, believe it or not, because the Pharisees said, we don't allow women to teach, to study at all. Now, Paul says, I don't allow women to teach. I allow them to study in silence. The Pharisees, the rabbis said, we don't allow women to study at all. And they said further, anyone who teaches his daughter the law is like one who teach her frivolous uh, behavior and stupidity. There is no point to teach women, so they said in Mishnah Sota. They are frivolous. They don't know anything. They don't understand. Now, it might be as I said, if the woman that they have in their mind is 12 years old, illiterate child, they may describe the women as illiterate, as frivolous, as stupid. However, that instruction or those rulings were 
designing the structure of the Jewish community for the next 2,000 years. The women were not invited to participate in any kind of a public arena, and that has to be mentioned. Within the house, women were respected. Within the family, they had important role. Within the family, they were respected and honored and well-treated. However, they had no existence outside of the family. They had no voice. They were completely silent. Exactly as Paul said, and I'll read it one more time, Paul said, the woman will study in complete silence, in complete subjugation. I don't allow women to teach, and I don't allow women to rule over her husband, I allow her only to keep in complete silence. Now, why? What is the reasoning for that? He would say, because man was created first. That is the reasoning. And only afterwards, Eve was created. Now, you see, myth is always very useful when you want to affect ruling. Here is the reasoning, because Adam was created first, and Eve only after him. Adam was not tempted, only his wife had been tempted. She had heard to the voice of the, tem of the serpent, the tempter, she had sinned. Now, you may pause a moment and ask, what is this story? Now, is that a story? What is a myth? A myth is an ancient story which has a long future ahead of it. Very manipulative future, yes. A myth is a story that had been told far away in the past and has been retold ever since afterwards. If you would look how many thousand times the story of Adam, even the serpent, had been retold, you wouldn't believe. Always, always, Elaine Pagels from Princeton wrote a beautiful book called Adam, Even the Serpent, and she had collected numerous traditions about how this myth had been manipulated always, always. Man is the incarnation of virtue, women is the incarnation of vice, and the outcome is he will rule over thee. That is, the man would rule over the woman. So the myth is a story that has a long future ahead of it. However, it cannot be verified, nor could it be reenacted. Because unfortunately, we are not well acquainted with speaking serpents and with, tempted, with tempting fruit or with paradise. However, you tell this story, not for the sake of the beauty of the story, but for the sake of the conclusion, he will rule over thee. Now, Paul, as any other Jew, was well acquainted with this story of Genesis. But he made the conclusion, exactly as Josephus, men would rule and women would be subjugated. As I said, we call it the patriarchal order. What does it include? First of all, women has no rights of inheritance. That means if there is mother, father, and three children. The first child, a boy, would inherit. The second child, a boy, would inherit. The third child, a girl, would have absolutely nothing. That's the law. Thus, women had no economical independence. They were absolutely dependent on their fathers to provide them as long as they were living at home. They were absolutely dependent on their husband to provide for them because they didn't have any means of their own, nor were they allowed to, get, to go outside to work. They were not capable to do work. They were not allowed to work. They were expected to stay at home. I'll go back one more time to Maimonides. 
Maimonides defined the word yatsanit. In today's Hebrew, yatsanit is a prostitute. For Maimonides, is a woman who leaves home more than twice a month. A woman is allowed. That means she's yotzet. She's getting out, out of her own initiative. What are the two times that she is welcome to leave? She has to go to the ritual bath once a month, to the mikveh, and she has to visit her parents as a law. They respect your mother and your father. And those are the only, only two instances in the end of the 12th century Spain that women of the Jewish community were allowed to go out. The 13th century considered Maimonides' ruling as divine word. Nobody could argue. Women were not allowed to leave the house. They were denied freedom of movement. They were denied freedom of study. They were denied access to any study. They were completely silent in any public arena. The meaning of it is that all laws were written by men. All exposition and interpretation of laws were written by men. All teachings were written by men. All rulings and judgment were done by men. Now, even of all men, as we all know, even all men would be angels. Now, they would miss by having half of the population outside of the human experience. The human voice was only consisted of the men exper male experience. Female experience was erased totally. It was not taken into consideration. What women wanted or felt or desired or detested or rejected or were crossed with was not taken into consideration. Only what the men had said. That was the law. So if the law written by men was that men would rule over women, it could not have been challenged by any woman because women didn't know to read the law. If the law says that only male would inherit, it could not have been protested by any woman because the women didn't know how to deal with the legal system. In order to deal with the legal system, you have to go to law school. Do you know when the first woman was admitted to Princeton? In 1969. And this is not ancient history, I repeat. 1969, the first woman was admitted to Princeton. Professor Natalie Simon Davis, a very important historian, had written her recollection. She was among the very first women who were admitted to Princeton at 1969. The first woman was admitted to Yale at 1971, and the rest is history. But 1961, 1969 is not ancient history. I'm sure some of you were around it. I mean, all of you are very young, but 1969 is not ancient history. But women were not admitted to Ivy Leagues before 1969. So now the world had changed tremendously in the second half of the 20th century because of the feminist revolution. Now people don't acknowledge it. When you study history and you ask what were the most important things in the 20th century, people may say the space revolution, the communist revolution, whatever, but the real true answer to that is the feminist revolution. First and foremost, it was without any bloodshed. Nobody was killed, nobody wanted to kill. However, from the moment that women had access to public arena of study, 
of judgment, of schooling, of participating in the public arena, things had changed. However, this is true only to the Western world. It is utterly not true to Africa. 99% of Africa is still in the darkness of male complete dominion and women complete subjugation. When I visited in Africa, in Kenya, I met people of the Maasai. The Maasai are very beautiful black people who are shepherds who are living like um, in biblical time. I asked them, where are the women? And they said, we hide them. We don't want them to see that there are free women walking around. They keep them in the tents far away in the fields. They don't allow them to see that there are women who are walking freely. This is the situation in many parts of rural Africa. Democracy had not, had not arrived there. Do you know that Switzerland allowed women to participate in vote in elections only in the late 70s, only 30 years ago? Now, American women were granted the right to participate in election not too long ago, only in the beginning of the 20th century, not a moment earlier. In the 19th century, no woman was allowed to participate in election, never mind to be a representative. But first of all, they were not allowed to participate in election. Those who were called suffragists are those who had fought for the right to women the right of women to participate in elections. People tend to forget and to take it for granted that they are free, that they have the right to vote, that they can run in politics. But that was not the situation in the beginning of the 20th century, and that's not too long time ago. Now, while men had the exclusive right for public voice, judgment, schooling, teaching, reading, writing, and exercising any source of authority, they all derived from one word, the connection between author and authority. Author is a person who write, who express authority in writing. This is true in Hebrew. You say mismach and samchut. Samchut is authority. Mismach is a document. Only men were allowed to author books and to extend authority. Only men were considered to be bar samcha or kotvei mismachim, that is a person of authority in Hebrew, or a person who writes authoritative uh, writings. Women were never considered to be as such. In the 30s, Virginia Woolf is writing very bitterly her famous work, A Room of One's Own, when she was refused the admittance to Oxford or Cambridge by her family because, first of all, there was no money for the education of the girls. There was only money for education of the boys. The fact that she was a gifted student didn't help her at all. She learned at home Greek and Latin and English literature. However, when she wanted to visit Oxford, she was told that women are not allowed to walk on the grass. That then when she, never mind to study, but she was not allowed to go into the male sacred dominions of New College, Christchurch, Balliol, and all those places. At the end of the 19th century, colleges for women were uh, instituted in America and in England, only in the end of the 19th century. But women were not admitted to the centers of scholarship in the world, in the new world or in the old world, they had been initiated to separate but equal. Equal it was not, separate it was. Co-education, as I said, for women in Ivy League institutions is only from the 70s. It's only 
39 years ago. It's not, it's not long time ago. We have to remember that. It's very new, very new. Now, as I said, men wrote all the laws. The first one was, the first law was, he will rule over thee. The second one was, women may not inherit. The third one was, women will not participate in any house of study. The justification of that was, is that women are defiled and angels are not present in place of defilement. Now this is ancient. At the time before the common era, when there was a temple in Jerusalem and there were priests running the culture and uh, religious life, they, they said the following statement, only men are serving in the holy precinct, women are barred out. Only Levitical men are serving in the temple and in its vicinities. Women are out. They are never part of it. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found the explanation. Angels are present only when there is complete purity. Women who are impure by bodily cycles, which are not under their control, can never know when they would be impure. Thus, they may endanger the holy precinct. They should be left outside. Now that decision which had to which had to combine the physical situation that no one has a control on with the exclusion which is a cultural decision had caused women to be left outside from cycles of study, liturgy, sanctity because in antiquity sanctity equaled culture. Culture was taking place where the sacred was taking place. The sacred was associated in the temple time with the presence of angels. Women were not allowed because of impurity to be present where angels are present. Thus, they were barred out from attaching themselves to the holy. And later on, the synagogue had adopted those ideas in certain circles and in priestly circles where we are told that women who are in an impure state are not to come to the synagogue. It is so written in text known as Baraita de Masechet Nida, which instructs women to stay outside of the synagogue in the parts of the month when they are impure. But the meaning of it was that they were not allowed to participate in the cycles of study, which were in the synagogue, which were in the Beit Midrash, which were in association with the temple. All that was close to them. That was one, that was one important way of exclusion. The other one was, and that's a bit funny, but it's very sad, what we would call the distinction of value of knowledge. When you are a man, you are pharmaceus, which is a pharmacist. When you are a woman, you are a pharmakea, which means a witch. The very, yeah, yeah, far, you open the dictionary, Latin dictionary, pharma, Latin or Greek dictionary, you know the word pharmacist, as you know, it derives from the Greek word pharmakeus, pharmakeus. The very same word in its feminine is pharmakea, which means a woman pharmacist. But pharmakeia is a witch, while pharmakeus is a pharmacist. They are doing exactly the same thing. They learn the same thing, they experience the same knowledge. When she does it, she is a witch. When he does it, he is a scholar. Now, it is interesting to learn. In Aramaic, 
a man who is doing, a man who is, in, who is credited with a high degree of wisdom is called Chacham Harashim, wise with magical words. Harashta is the female word of Harash, is a witch again. When he's doing it, he's the wise guy. When she's doing it, she's a witch. This is what we call appropriation of knowledge. So the knowledge might be exactly equal. Only when she does it, it is witchcraft. When he does it, it is pharmaceutical knowledge. Women who had acquired particular kind of knowledge, and women were well-versed with pharmaceutical knowledge because they helped other women to give birth, and they were interested in learning a lot about helping, soothing, easing the pain, treating the babies that are born, but they would always be the first to be suspected as witches. In Europe, in the time of the great witch craze, all midwives had to sign an oath that they are not witches and that they will not use the blood issued from the giving birth mother to use as witchcraft. They were suspected and they were burnt alive wholeheartedly by the church authorities and the Inquisition as witches just because they had obtained a certain kind of knowledge. As I said, language and etymology is very worthwhile subject to study. Because when you learn that famulus is a slave and familia is a family of slaves, you learn something about social order. When you learn that pharmacia is a witch while pharmaceus is a pharmacist, you learn how knowledge is not an objective subject. It is a matter of power. Who will have the power to decree who is allowed to use knowledge? Now, today, you are living in a place where there are diverse ways of uh, running synagogues. This is quite an innovation. In the orthodox circles, never a woman can officiate as a rabbi. A woman cannot officiate as a judge. A woman cannot officiate as a teacher in the synagogue because women are barred out from all those positions of knowledge. Now, that could be justified as this is the tradition of our fathers or this is written here or written there. But the fact of the matter is that high rabbis in the orthodox uh, cycles can be only men, exactly as judges in the orthodox circles can be only men. There is no women in rabbinical court. There are no teachers in orthodox schools. However, women are using those courts because if a woman wished to have divorce, she has to go to a rabbinical court. No other courts are available in Israel. The stories of the chained women, those who wish to have divorce but are not granted a divorce because according to the Jewish law, only men can grant a divorce, only men can initiate a divorce. Women are chained by the thousands because men who refuse to give a divorce until they would extort a great deal of money can chain their women for years and years. A woman is not allowed to establish a new family as long as her husband did not grant her a divorce. Now, the husband may be a lunatic in asylum, a person who got lost, an evil man, a criminal, a prisoner. If he does not grant a divorce, the woman would be chained to him forever. Now, now we're talking on 21st century modern Israel. I don't know how it is here in the observant circles, but there are 
I was told alternative of civil law, civil marriage, civil divorce. In Israel, there is no such alternative. Thus, we say that the ancient laws are still in complete function. In Israel, there is no civil law for marriage and divorce and for personal matters. All personal status laws are directed by the Orthodox law, which is based on biblical and Talmudic laws. It is extremely hard. Now, I would say the following. 90% of the biblical laws are wonderful, are wise, are inspiring, are just. But the 10% laws, which are referring to women, are very bad because they don't work within the sensitivities of the modern world, which are taking for granted equality and freedom. No equality in rabbinical law and no freedom for women in biblical and rabbinical law. And yet, this is the system that is in office. I would say one more sentence about it. The system of the personal laws is a bequest from the Osman Empire who had said in 1517, when they took over the land of Israel from the Mamelukes, that 16th century, they said, we have no idea how to deal with the personal laws of those Jews, Muslims, Christians, Cherkessi, Druzi, Farsi, we have no idea what to do. Every community would deal with its own laws of marriage and divorce according to their respective religious tradition. From the 1517 until today, that's the situation. The British mandate ruled from, 15, from uh, 1918 to 1948. In the 30 years that we had the Brit, they said, we have no idea what to do with all those laws of Muslims, Christians, Bedouin, Cherkessians. Okay, now from 1948, Israeli government had been established. All the laws of the state of Israel, with the exception of the personal laws, are the most advanced in the world. We have wonderful work laws, economical laws, social security laws. We have wonderful laws in every aspect, with the exception of family laws or personal status laws. There we are working according to the ancient Turkish system. Every community would marry and divorce only according to its religious our religious heritage. We don't have civil law. We don't have civil marriage or divorce law. We have only religious law. Thus, people of different communities cannot marry. People who belong to different denominations, communities, religion cannot marry because in Israel you can marry only your own community member. Thus, Jews can marry only Jews, Muslims only Muslims, Christians only Christians, and if they wish to intermarry, there is no such way because there is no legal uh, there is no legal framework which allows such a thing. The Israeli young generation choose not to get married at all. They say, we don't want to be subjugated to rabbinical divorce laws. We are not going to implore the rabbinical court to grant us divorce in case that we may want to have a divorce. And there is no divorce other than a rabbinical divorce. So they say, we're not going to marry. We'll have a private arrangement. We'll write a contract. We'll go to Cyprus, whatever. We just don't go to marry according to that. You may ask why you didn't have time to change the Turkish law, because we were always busy with more urgent things, and men always have more urgent things than alleviate the situation of women. So instead of, instead of talking, how shall we give more to the religious parties or more to the right-wing party or more to the left-wing party, they should have said, how should we 
relieve all women of all kinds from the subjugation of religious strictures, which are not applicable according to modern sensitivities. However, nobody took that issue to consideration. And they said, you know, after we would resolve the priest process, after we would make peace with the Palestinians and we would find out the solution with the Arabs, and then we would start to work on that, you know, messianic legal thing. <laughs> now, okay, now. I think that we would conclude in this point, and I would only add the following. While most of history, women were subjugated to their husbands, and all legal traditions was patriarchal tradition, in the second half of the 20th century, we enjoy a great achievement. Women and men are born free by law women and men in the Western world have the same privilege to access to knowledge, to wisdom, to schooling, to authority, to all those things according to their own merits, not according to their gender, according to their merits, according to their talents, according to their possibilities. Nobody, according to law, is denied from any public access to education because he or she are male and female. This is true as long as you don't look too close on orthodox educations and as long as you're confining yourself to the Western world. However, we need to remember the Western world is an island of sanity in an ocean of insanity. Insanity means we take for granted that all the Muslim world women are subjugated. All the African Muslim and pagan world women are subjugated. All the other parts of the world which are not West are still keeping the old patriarchal order. You all had seen the women who walks covered from top to bottom with those huge tents, which exactly reflect the idea that women should not leave the house. That's the idea behind the tent. They are taking their house with them. They are in the house and you cannot see them. Now they see you because they need to cross the street, but you don't see them. They are in the house. That's the reason they are covered from top to bottom to defend their modesty and not to be visible by any outsider. Now, needless to say, that has all kind of said, uh, said uh, effect on daily life, on human life, on health, on freedom of movement and many other things. But we need to remember one thing. We should not take for granted human freedom. We should not take for granted female equality. There is no human freedom in great part of the world if women are human, and women are human anywhere where freedom is in question, where equality is in question, where education is in question, but yet they don't have the access to it. In the huge Muslim world, in the huge non-Western world, we need to remember it. When everybody's speaking about uh, contradictions or conflicts between civilizations, between the Christian world and the Muslim world, we need to remember that in the foundation of this conflict is the fact that in the Muslim world, women are utterly subjugated to their husbands. A very important Egyptian woman, such as a minister, 
cannot board an airplane without a written consent of her husband. No women are allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. No women are allowed to any universities in Iraq. In the Muslim world, this is still the situation. We need to remember that. We need to think about it. We need to say we had made a great advance in the Jewish community, in the Western world community, but we are far beyond in other communities, and that affects a great deal our life. It is our responsibility under tikkun olam to check that there would be no communities where women are marginalized by illiteracy and by subjugation, and say that when you ask what's the messianic era, when all people would have equal access to literacy, to schooling, to exert their opportunities and talents without being asked, is that a woman or is that a man? Thank you very much.